Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Friends, it is a delight to be here today with April Baskin, who is principal of Joyous Justice Coaching and Consulting, and also serves as the Racial Justice Director of the Jewish Social Justice Roundtable. She was previously the Union for Reform Judaism's Vice President of Audacious Hospitality, a title that reflects her commitment to welcoming groups of Jews who have traditionally been marginalized from institutional Jewish settings. April, thank you so much for taking time with us. And I love your work, so it's so great to be here with you today. Thank you, Thank you so much. Thank you. A big fan of yours. Uh, you've been leading Jewish diversity, equity, and inclusion work for almost 20 years. Um, what has been most inspiring about this work for you, um, you know, up till now? I love Jewish people. Um, <laughs> and, and I think, basically, I mean, this isn't the most professional way of saying it, that Jews of color are kind of magical. Like there's, there's something, and not always, but there's something that comes from being Jewish and then being a Jew, a person of color, and then at times being multiracial and having to make peace with and synthesize all those different experiences and thread them into something that is both meaningful and coherent that just often creates magic. And if not magic, definitely, um, a lot of diversity and innovation, not just in terms of ethnic identity or racial identity, but in terms of career and perspective. Um, so in this work, I just, I believe that our community is really powerful and special and sacred. And I believe that while we don't have an exclusive role to play in making the world a better place, I do believe that Jews have a distinctive or a distinct role to play. and. As much as I can be of value and help us live into a destiny that I think we're meant for, um, that's what keeps me propelled in this work. And in the places that, are, that we're stuck or that we're just not so great, I consistently see that that's connected with trauma. And so even though sometimes it's very personally painful for me, I'm still able to... Um, let some of it go, acknowledging that it comes from a place of having been hurt. Amazing, amazing. How, how, can, um, how can Jews of color uh, serve as a bridge between non-Jewish people of color and white Jews? And is that a fair uh, ex, you know, hope or expectation to be a bridge? Or is yeah, that an right. unfair burden? Woo, it's a loaded question. You can ask, 10 different Jews of color that question. And I think you'll see a number of similarities and also a range, a full range of perspectives mm -hmm. about that. There's this seminal feminist book uh, that came out in the 80s called um, A Bridge Called My Back um, that has a lot of great works. Just even that title alone to me 
Um, there's times in my career where I viscerally, where I've literally, I've been metaphorically and I've viscerally felt like a bridge. I think it might've even been at one time where we were actually in the same place at the same time in, outside of Ferguson. And it, I was literally like, I was a bridge between the black folks and our, and my organization's board and, and leadership body. Um, it is painful and precarious. And some of the things I think I would say about it, and it's also extremely powerful. And I wrote about the potential that Jews of color have in that regard in my thesis um, while I was in school. And um, so I do think that there is a lot of potential there, but here's what I would say. If we use this metaphor, if we build on this metaphor of a bridge, that it needs to be consensual, right? So it needs to be something where a person chooses this. And ideally from a holistic place, um, you know, that there's a lot of healing that I think at times needs to happen. There's a lot of trauma when you are, when you embody an identity that um, emanates from multiple communities that have been targeted for destruction, they're not only oppressed, but have literally at one point or another have been targeted to be annihilated or experienced such psychological trauma that it erases who they used to be. Um, that's a lot, right? So I do think, and I'm seeing now, we're seeing collectively the powerful role that Jews of color play and it's sensitive and I can't speak about it extensively, but I've also seen having done this work for almost 20 years, the psychological toll um, that it can make for some of us when we are in the spotlight for a prolonged period of time and get tar targeted in particular ways and don't have adequate resources. And so um, it's really important that we fortify ourselves and that bridge and the core. We have support systems in place to constantly check in with ourselves that we are cared for because it's a vulnerable, um, yet also critical position for folks who are up for it and who have built up the stamina and the knowledge base to be able to do it responsibly and effectively. Mm, mm, amazing, yeah. So, so how, on a personal level, how has your racial identity impacted the way you've been received in Jewish communities uh, in which you've been active? It, it varies. And in part, I feel like it's a little hard for me to fully answer that question. Like, I feel like I might, in some ways, it's still have limitations. Like if you had been on my shoulder invisibly or if some person with a different identity who could see like, oh, this is where something is different. Cause for me, it's just my life, right? So I'm aware when you ask that, like I immediately think like, oh, well, I can only answer that to the extent that I'm aware and that I can go outside of my own lived experience to see a, a difference. What I can speak about, I think, effectively having noted some of the inherent limitations of what I'm able to perceive about my own experience is that I, um, I experience what I, what was a finding in my thesis. Um, I've, ex I found that I've experienced that in my own life, despite having largely been included and, in and I've been honored to serve in a number of very exciting leadership roles in the community is that consistently, regardless of, of um, success or leadership positions that I have um, what I would refer to as a conditional membership status. Um, I talked in my research uh, while I was at Tufts about the, um, what, did, what did I call it? Um, the perpetual stranger status that Jews of color have. There's a scholar, an American, a Japanese American scholar, Ronald, Ronald Sakaki, who wrote a book um, called something like the Multicultural History of America. And in it, he talked about a sociological phenomenon that affects 
uh, Latinos and Asian Americans that he called the perpetual uh, foreigner status, that it doesn't matter how long their families have been here, that consistently people will talk to them like this. They will assume that they don't speak English or they will assume that they just got off the boat or that they were immigrants when they were like, my, actually my family are Mexican and we literally never live anywhere else, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, and yet, and so, and so similarly to, to make a, I made a biblical reference around for Jews of color, around this idea of strangers in a strange land and, and that Jews of color are perpetual strangers. That I find that like my ideal of belonging in any community would be that I have like, like middle, like middle level attention. So like I just kind of fit in. Sometimes I'm noticed, sometimes I'm not. And, and full acceptance. And what I find for Jews of color is we often have hyper visibility where we're super tokenized and like the entire world knows about us as the first whatever, you know, the first rabbi who is this or that, or, you know, and that it's just like blown out of proportion or the first executive of the reform movement, you know, it's like super mega or, or we're confused as a custodian or hired help or a friend and we're like completely Jewishly invisible. We're not literally invisible, but people read us as totally not Jewish. And, and that has been my experience too. It's been, I think, less the fact because I've had the opportunity to serve in different leadership roles. So in a lot of parts of the country, people know me personally, which is still a little odd because a number of my peers who have similar roles as me and other organizations, like people don't necessarily know their names when they just walk into their synagogue on a Friday night, right? You know, so so those are some of the ways that being a Jew of color has impacted me. And it certainly has impacted my sense of purpose and how I view the world because it has given me a number of targeted experiences around both racism and anti-Semitism and those and the various ways that those intersect. Wow, there's there's so much depth there. I'm I'm really I'm really honored to be to be on the inside listening to these experiences and uh, and learning from you. Um so what are, what's on your wish list for, uh, uh, or what are the top priorities for what the Jewish community should be doing uh, to address this internally? And to what degree it, um, must the Jewish community address racial injustice issues on a societal level in order to demonstrate on a communal level um, that we are actually committed to uh, addressing racism within the community? Yeah, I think, you know, I lead, I lead multi-hour trainings on this. So what, you know, what can I say in a few minutes that would be helpful? Um, I believe it's critically important for our well-being and for the longevity of us as a people that we get a better understanding about race and racism. I think part of the reason why our community at times simultaneously tends to be on the leading edge of this work with the few select leaders and at other times is, I estimate roughly 10 to 15 or sometimes 20 years behind, um, either the broader social justice movements or even some mainstream societal institutions is in part because of the internalized effects of anti-Semitism that is a very specific and distinct form of oppression that manifests in particular ways that has, I believe, impacted the collective consciousness of, of white Ashkenazim, of white Ashkenazi Jews, um, and made it very confusing, made the whole conversation around race confusing. Uh, Jews weren't always classified as white. 
And the way I, I articulate white Ashkenazi Jews identity now is I say that we have a status of conditional whiteness in American society, that depending upon if anti-Semitism spikes or other social dynamics change and it serves uh, those in power to shift that identity, that that can change at any time. Um, and, and because over the last 40 years, Jews have been largely, but not entirely, but often have been socialized in the context of whiteness. Part of how whiteness operates is that it's invisible. And I think that in inculcating or in assimilating into white American society by doing that, I think not all, I'm speaking in broad trends here that may or may not be applicable to individuals, right? But that by, by integrating into this racist, literally whitewashed context of people of European heritage losing their identity, um, to, in order to blend in, that's caused some confusion fundamentally around our identity as Jews. So to me, this is an important conversation for a lot of different reasons. I think for collective Jewish liberation, the better we understand race and racism, the better we will understand our own narrative, and the better we will be able to show up for people across lines of difference. I think one of our greatest challenges in showing up across lines of difference and in, in under properly understanding other people's story is that we don't necessarily have a holistic understanding of our own story um, because of the nature, because of the ways that Jews have been expected to just blend in and not complain or not talk about certain things and just fit in and move on. Um, and in doing that, I, I think we need to build our muscles. So what I mean very, what I mean very concretely is I think forming different reading groups, having different discussion groups of white Ashkenazi Jews. I'm a big fan of affinity groups for everyone. Everyone gets an affinity group. White people get, oh, that's what I was gonna say earlier. White people get affinity groups, black people, a Asian heritage people, like every person deserves a space. It's kind of like religion. Like, yes, we like to at times intermingle with people of other religions, but at the end of the day, we also like to have specific spaces that are just for Jews. Um, and the last thing that I would say about this, because um, I know we still have more questions, is that I think a fundamental conundrum about racism, that's true with other dynamics, true that I, that is true of other forms of oppression that I just want to disrupt is that people think that working on racism is only about helping people of color. But it's like, no, 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 no. Working on racism is going to help all of us. And white people have a different stake, but just as much of a stake in the conversation as folks of color. I think it's important that any in any oppressive dynamic, it's important to center the voices of the people who are most directly affected. But we actually need leadership and ownership from everyone about what is the story, how has racism impacted us as Jews? And I think it's truly impacted us. I think it's a big part of why, to me, the conversation about Jewish assimilation is directly connected to our conversation about continuity. We paid a price. What was I often, when I'm in conversation with folks, I often ask, like, what was the price your family paid to gain access, conditional access, not even full, I'm, I'm, with, I'm with folks on that up, but conditional access to whiteness. Did women in your family have nose jobs? Did they, have, did they literally reconstruct their face so that they would be targeted less? Have women straightened their hair? Did people change their last name? Did they bring the mezuzahs on the inside of their door? Did they stop being observant in ways, not just because they didn't want to be religious, but actually for their own survival? And so for me, it's a quite a liberatory act to focus on conversations with race and start in, in spaces that are appropriate, not going, not going to an NAACP meeting and being like, center me, not that, but like 
in your own spaces, in our own spaces with our own folks and within affinity spaces to come together and say, what's our story? What was the impact of the Rosenberg trial on my family? How did that shift how my family showed up in the world? Yeah, so well said, so well said. Thank you, thank you. So uh, as someone who emerges from orthodoxy, I'm very aware of racial, uh, you know, racist dimensions within orthodoxy and see a big part of my work as publicly naming that and challenging that. I don't see that kind of naming happening from the reform movement. And I wonder, is there just not racism in the reform movement? Um, or is it just addressed more quietly? Uh, so what are kind of the, the dynamics in, a, in progressive Judaism that kind of prides itself on being progressive um, and kind of how this is playing out there? Yeah, so I have, this is an excellent question. I, I, again, I have a lot of thoughts on it. This actually makes me feel better about my longer previous answer because that'll, I'll weave some of the points that I raised into this, into my response to this really thoughtful question. Um, so what I would say is, where to begin? Um, so I believe that there is, that our community needs to confront racism and that racism is present in every denomination. When I wrote my thesis about Jews of color, I explicitly interviewed folks from all denominations and from all racial, well, not all, but many different racial and ethnic backgrounds and tried to get a really diverse cross-section of folks. And what I found is that there are some trends in how racism shows up and how it manifests. For instance, I find within the Orthodox community, I believe in part because of, again, speaking in broad sociological trends, that um, because of the form of observance, because it is very explicit, um, and direct, that that directness and explicitness shows up around racism in terms of both being either inclusive around, yes, you're black, I know that's important in the world, but that doesn't matter in the context of halacha, you're welcome, let's, that's it, there's both that. And there was also in the interviews more instances of stories around physical violence that manifested in the context of yeshivas with children, or, or other places, right? So there was there were both of those ends of the spectrum within the Orthodox experience. Um, and interestingly, I think, so relating to the piece that I was talking about, about assimilation, I think that's also in some ways an asset for the Orthodox community because the Orthodox community has more significantly resisted some of the big waves and pressure around assimilation. And so I think in certain ways that positions Orthodox Jews to be better equipped to look directly at the issue of racism and have a real and courageous conversation about it because Orthodox Jews in some ways have more muscles around doing that. Whereas in more progressive sects of Judaism, people both even before they got to this country in the context of Europe, but also in America, did more assimilation into American society. And since the majority of America is white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, some of the elements of that culture got interwoven into progressive strains of, of Judaism, including uh, being conflict averse. Um, so even though we still have this heritage around Hevruta, around paired um, intensive, robust study, since those are things that a number, not all, but in, in everyday life, a number of progressive Jews have left behind, there's not as much muscle around confronting conflict in general, and especially around issues that are hard. And I think in part, it's also a blind spot because there has been more assimilation and a loss of some of that. They also, I think, 
at times don't even have the tool. Like they don't, like back to what I was saying, they don't have an understanding of the ways in which they are or once were distinctive. And so being able to have a meaningful conversation with people who are very distinctive from the broader culture, it, it makes it, it doesn't make it impossible, but it adds an additional challenge. Okay, awesome. I feel like I could talk with you for hours, but I want to honor your time. Um, I just love listening to you. So here's my last question for you today. Um, how do we bring joy into this work? How do we bring positivity into social change work uh, in regards to what we're talking about and beyond? When there can be so much anger, there can be so much resentment, so much frustration, um, is there a value um, to bringing you know, to joy into this also? And how do we do that? I love this question. <laughs> I think joy is vital. I think joy, if we're ignoring suffering and oppression, joy can be dysfunctional. And so I think a number of people have become resistant to the concept of joy. But as someone who does believe in the divine, who believes in God, and who also just um, practices gratitude and appreciation, even when awful things are happening to me, it's important to hold a holistic perspective. Um, it's often, I still am figuring out and in conversation with my family because I tend to be more open and I have family members who are very private, but without getting into specifics, I've, I've had to navigate over the course of my life a lot of trauma and tragedy. And, and so one, part of my disposition around joy comes from, is rooted in a fundamental belief in people seeking out therapy or healing from other means. I'm now a part of an anti-oppressive healing community where I've learned trauma counseling and I both receive trauma counseling and offer trauma counseling to other people. And so that is a prerequisite or that is a precursor to my joy. I'm able to be joyful because when painful things come up, I believe in working through things. That might be for a day or for a month or it might just be five minutes. Like this person just said this thing that's hurtful. I'm gonna go to the bathroom and cry or shake or rage. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna be present. I'm going to be present with what's coming up um, or I'm gonna write about it. I have this exercise that I call it or the composting exercise where I write down, where I start by writing down everything that makes me angry. I write, I write it all down and once I've written it all down, I start with the prompt, I would love. And then like once I've got, I would love for this to happen, right? So I really believe as someone who, two of the men in my family have been stopped at different points um, um, at gunpoint, who have been stopped at gunpoint by law enforcement, as someone who's encountered a lot of different, very scary things. It's important to me as someone who believes in the divine to remember that even when horrific things are happening, that people are also joyful in this world and that birds are chirping and that we have a climate crisis, but there's still a lot that's beautiful in this world. And for me to have a holistic perspective, um, one, because it's more fun, um, but also because I believe that that is the best mindset of being present and allowing space to witness and not ignore injustice in the world, but that is a better place from which I can envision solutions. Mm. Um, and the last thing that I'll say about it is that another practice I have related to this is that when something negative happens, I take time to process if I need to, but now if, I, if it's something I've processed enough, I have a practice of asking myself, how does this further clarify what I want and put my focus on that? So what that looks like for me as someone whose family members have been targeted by brutality, 
um, by law enforcement. We also, I also have family, family members who are in law enforcement. So I have a holistic perspective, right? But is that when I see that another unarmed person has been killed, I used to let it drag me down and I can't do that anymore. So now I use it to say, I decide like, is this someone who is personally close to me? And if they're not, I say, I focus on how does the, how, what am I doing in my life in a productive way to work toward a world of wholeness, justice, and compassion and double down on that. Love it. Wow. So you said so much there, but three things that I'm taking away. One is this uh, belief in God and zooming out to the bigger picture uh, spiritually. A second is that there's, there's liberation that we're not in control of systemically, communally, but then there's aspects of liberation we are in control of within ourselves and our own healing or partially in control of. And those are connected. And then thirdly, that we can be more productive towards working towards solutions if we're operating from, from this place. You said much more than that, but that's a little bit of what- Thank you. I appreciate you doing that. I said a thank, lot, so thank, thank you. you. Okay, amazing. Well, thank you so much. Uh, friends, if you'd like to inquire about hiring April as a coach, a trainer, a keynote speaker, you can find and get in touch with her at www.joyousjustice.com. I highly recommend it. Thank you so much for your time and wisdom and all the work you do. Thank you, it was such a pleasure.